If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, let's go to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 is our text. The topic, the Israelites get restless waiting for Moses to descend Mount Sinai, and they imagine something bad has happened to him. The title of our message, anybody here seen my old friend Moses? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seems the good they fast long. Now, I, because this is a thing, how many of you don't know that reference? You don't have any idea what I'm talking about? Kids these days. For you, the title of our message is Enemies of the Weight. So take your pick. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning thus far. Singing to you is such a, a blessing and a privilege. You've given us that imagery and the word of incense rising before your throne. Thank you for that. As we turn our attention to your word, we need your spirit to be our teacher and to also uh, make application in our lives, Lord. Ancient text, modern people, you do it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone who agreed said, amen. It's the universal complaint of all haters of Disneyland. They can't stand the long waits. So how long are the waits? Believe it or not, Disneyland has unashamedly posted the 10 longest wait times of the last decade. Hang on. Number 10 is one you probably wouldn't guess, the Matterhorn bobsleds. 150 minutes on June 19th of 2017. Don't be surprised, it's an iconic ride. It uh, dates to 1959, just four years after the opening of the park. I remember as a kid driving down from San Bernardino, when you saw the tip of the Matterhorn, you were at Disneyland. <laughs> anyway. I have in my office a piece of the Matterhorn, by the way. I'll show it to you if you'd like to see it. It's from their latest renovation. They were selling off pieces of the Matterhorn. I'm surprised none of you have pieces of the Matterhorn. <laughs> And then there's the whole group that thinks I'm lying. But anyway, number nine, Star Tours, 150 minutes, December 11th, 2015. Number six, the Indiana Jones Adventure, 175 minutes, December 29, 2016. Numbers seven and six both occurred May 20, 2017. It was the hottest day in May in Anaheim, 95 blistering degrees. But that's unbearable by the thin-skinned residents of Southern California. Can you guess which rides posted wait times of 180 minutes? Splash Mountain and the Grizzly River Run, both likely to get you pretty wet. Number five, Space Mountain, 190 minutes, January 3rd, 2017. Number four, Goofy's Sky School, 200 minutes, October 13, 2015. All I can say is the Golden Zephyr must have been closed. Number three, Soarin' Around the World, 210 minutes, May 21st, 2017. Number two, Radiator Springs Racers, 240 minutes, January 28th, 2017. 2017 was a bad year all the way around. <laughs> the number one longest wait time of the last decade, according to Disney, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, 300 minutes, five hours, May 29th, 2017. Now, for the record... We don't wait in line any more than 30 minutes. We fast pass or we just hit the ride later. 
You can track live wait times right from your phone. You'd be surprised how 20 minutes makes a big difference in terms of wait times and where people are. People are like little groups of people moving around from ride to ride. Newer rides, it may take you several visits before you can find a manageable line. I think it was fully three years after its opening that we first went on the Finding Nemo submarines. So I guess you could say we waited three years for it. (laughs) Now, I was reminded that I did wait in a line once for four or five hours. I think it was five hours. All you need to do is uh, later or this morning, if you get bored, Google Trilogy Tuesday, and you'll see why your pastor and his wife and son waited in line for four hours And future daughter-in-law came and brought us food, as I recall. So anyway, it was a family thing. Now listen, you can't simply show up on a packed weekend during peak summer season and think you're going to walk on rides at Disneyland. You need to have a strategy for managing your waiting. Otherwise, of course, you're going to get frustrated and quit going to the happiest place on earth. I'm talking about waiting strategies because in our text, the children of Israel grew impatient waiting for Moses to return from Mount Sinai. Now, when the people saw, verse 1, that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. This is important because we are called upon to wait. If you are in Christ, you are waiting for his imminent return to resurrect the dead in Christ and to rapture living believers. And while you're waiting for him to come for you, you're probably waiting for some answers to prayer. You might be waiting through an acute or even a chronic suffering. The impatience of the Israelites can teach us a lot about waiting patiently. We want the Lord to, as it says in 2 Thessalonians 3, direct our hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. And so I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Waiting provokes you to be readier. And number two, waiting presents God as being a relenter. Let's talk about being readier first in verses one through six. Now, the first Christians, those guys and gals in the book of Acts, they were excited about waiting. You might say they couldn't wait to wait. The Apostle Paul wrote, knowing the time, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us when we first believed. If you don't see his excitement in that, then you're reading it wrong. The Apostle Peter confronted scoffers head on, those who mocked the promise of Jesus' imminent return. And then Peter said, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt like fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to promises, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, look forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Peter was waiting, looking forward with extreme joy. These guys were world-class waiters. Waiting encouraged them to personal holiness and to tireless ministry. Each new day was lived as if it would be the day that Jesus would come. In that light, they stayed ready by serving the Lord with all their heart, mind, and strength. The Israelites example for us the very opposite perspective. And so let's look at it beginning again in verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down 
from the mountain. Let's reduce this to simpler terms so we can see ourselves being described. Moses was Israel's deliverer and mediator. He had gone up Mount Sinai to be with God. In his absence, the Israelites were to wait in holiness with the expectation Moses would return to lead them to their inheritance in the promised land. Same with us. Jesus is our deliverer and mediator. He has ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. In his absence, the church on earth is to wait in holiness with the expectation he will return to take us to the place he is preparing for us in heaven. We can wait like Paul and Peter or we can wait like the Israelites. And so continuing in verse one, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come make us gods that shall go before us for as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Now, it had been close to 40 days. Even if you concede that 40 days is a long time, it isn't. Their reaction to waiting was extreme. Impatience caused the Israelites to seek other gods. As we pointed out before, these gods were demonic entities, principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. They were represented by idols of wood and stone, but they were real. We don't always understand this. In Egypt, you recall, Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform mighty works that were for a time equal to those of Moses. Eventually, they got stalled and they had to say, hey, Moses God, he's, he's God and we can only do a few things. But their source was demonic and they really did turn their staffs into snakes. It wasn't sleight of hand, it wasn't some kind of mirror thing that was going on. Uh, and so they had power. And so it wasn't that they just worshiped a golden calf. It represented some demonic power uh, that was behind it. The religions of the world, we would say anything that's not biblical Christianity is the doctrine of a demon or the doctrine of demons. And so by default, if a person is involved in one of the world's religions, then they are worshiping devils. They wouldn't say that, of course, Nobody in the cult says, I'm in a cult. They don't say that they're worshiping devils. But these are, biblical Christianity is the original religion, if you want to put it that way. It's not the right word, but people say, oh, no, that started with Jesus Christ and his disciples. No, it started in the Garden of Eden. Actually, it started in eternity past in the mind and heart of God. But biblical Christianity, it is the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ. Everything else is some doctrine of a demon or demons, and when people follow after it, they're worshiping devils. And Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Some commentators suggest that he asked for their personal adornment, thinking they would be too vain to give them up. Everybody wants to give Aaron a break here and give him a pass. I wish we knew more about Aaron's heart was it easy for him to waffle? Did they put pressure on him? At any rate, uh, they gave up their jewelry. And in passing, I'm going to note without commenting that their sons wore golden earrings. Do with that what you will. Verse 3, so all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf and then they said, this is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Uh, this was probably gold overlay on a wood carving, no telling how large or how small it was. 
Verse five, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now remember, Moses was up on the mountain receiving the proper worship of God and Aaron is making up his own ideas about how to worship the Lord. And I think he was sincere about worshiping the God that had brought them out of Egypt, but the thing that I would say about this is that demons don't really mind if you worship God as long as you add to your worship things that are false and fleshly. The devil's not concerned that there are churches in Hanford or around the world because the Bible says that false teachers creep into them unawares and they destroy them from within. And so he sees them as a place to send his secret agents. Uh, And so you can worship the true God and the devil doesn't get all excited because he brings the false worship. So we're always on guard about bringing in false things, false teachings, false Christian teachings, false worldly teachings, worldly philosophies, those kinds of things. And uh, if you're online at all, you know it's a, it's a tough thing to have a discernment about because some people swing way, way too far and, and um, other people not far enough. And it, it requires a real heart to just find a balance in these things. Then they rose on the next day early, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and then they rose up to play. Uh, They had a drunken orgy is what this means. They went through the motions of genuine worship in the spirit, then turned immediately to the satisfying of their flesh. Today we call this hypocrisy and we might gently describe someone as a Sunday Christian, somebody who goes to church but is probably not a saved individual and during the week uh, they live for the devil as it were. Maybe you've waited 40 days for God to act. Maybe you've waited 40 months. Maybe it's been 40 years. What seems like a long time really isn't because we're promised in the Bible that our light affliction is but for a moment. You say, well, what is my light affliction? Any affliction, however heavy it may seem to us, it's just for a moment. How can decades or a lifetime of suffering be considered a moment? Well, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day and with uh, a day is like a thousand years. But more to the point, uh, if we look at how men like Paul and Peter waited, the thing that gave them courage and perseverance is that they looked beyond this life to eternal life. When you're looking at eternity, when you're looking to heaven in the future, then everything becomes a light affliction that's but for a moment, working for you a far more exceeding weight of glory. Paul, for example, freely admitted that he had, and I quote, a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Somebody came up to you and said, you say, hey, how you doing? I want to leave this planet and be with God. You start wondering, do I need to turn this person in to mental health? Are they threatening suicide? Do they have the means for doing it? Paul the apostle said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ because that's better. That's what I'm meant to do and and to be. In the same passage, he would exclaim, for me to live is Christ, but to die would be gain. Not a death wish. Heaven is our home. So we ought to be what? Homesick. Dave Hunt wrote a book. Uh, It was a pretty good book for its time. He's home in heaven now, by the way, apologist and author. Title of the book, Whatever Happened to Heaven? Talked about how Christians uh, concentrate so much on living here and now and not looking ahead to the heavenlies. Peter said, 
we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter was looking forward. In the book of Hebrews, we read of the saints, especially those who suffered much on the earth, and it says they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Of Abraham, it is said, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. People wait in line 300 minutes, five hours, because for them, Guardians of the Galaxy mission breakout is worth it in the end. How very, very much more is heaven worth our wait? In the meantime, having a desire to depart and be with Jesus is just the motivation you need to have the spiritual philosophy to live is Christ. Now, secondly, in the remaining verses, we see that waiting presents God as being a relenter. Now, God never changes his mind, but he does relent. And rather than define that word, I want to illustrate it for you from the Bible. The classic example of God relenting is the ancient city of Nineveh. God sent Jonah there with this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I doubt he had a sandwich board sign, but if he did, that's all that was on it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Hearing the message... The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Here was their reasoning. This is Jonah 3, verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And verse 10 is the result. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In only two of the 38 instances in the Old Testament is this word relent used of men. It is almost exclusively used of God. It is not God changing his mind. It is God acting according to his nature. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He must judge, and when the time comes to judge, he judges. But he gives men still opportunity to repent. And when they repent, he acts accordingly not changing his mind, but giving men what they don't deserve, and that is grace. And so verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone, that my, ma uh, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. <sighs> Apparently, God could keep his unconditional promises to Abraham, even if he killed off Israel and started over, so to speak, with Moses. This tells us that God's absolute sovereignty over his creation takes into account mankind's free will without violating either. Just because I cannot fully explain the relationship of sovereignty to free will doesn't mean one of them isn't genuine. And so this is heady stuff. Theologians could argue about this. Some, in fact, and most evangelical scholars think that God was just kind of testing Moses, that he didn't mean that he would ever do this. It was just one of those tests to see what Moses would do and to bring out Moses' character. But I got to tell you, I think God was serious. He said, Moses, stiff-necked people, <laughs> plan D uh, is to wipe them all out and start over with you, and that's going to work. 
Now, we can't see how that could possibly work out because we see the actual story as it unfolded. We look back from our perspective with the completed word of God. But God is being serious. And it's too heady for me to to try and speculate except to say that God in his sovereignty accounts for man's free will and his decisions. And he is always ready uh, to continue his plan through his providence. And so verse 11, then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, I brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Now regarding Nineveh, God relented despite Jonah's objections. He did it on his own because he's compassionate in response to their repentance. Regarding Israel, God relented on account of Moses' intercession. And so it seems that God always relents when men repent. In the Bible, our intercession is also a factor in men repenting. It doesn't always cause people to repent or force them. Prayer is not a magic spell by which we get whatever we want. Because again, God is dealing with issues of the heart and with free will. And so we continue to pray because I see in the Bible that Sometimes God does answer that prayer in the affirmative, uh, but the ultimate goal is that people who are far from the Lord, that they would repent and that he will relent of his judgment upon them should they die rejecting Christ. Verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Again, this is an Old Testament way of saying that God is long-suffering, not willing any should perish. Eventually, those who continue in rebellion despite his long-suffering must be judged. They must perish eternally. But along the way, God works through his people to reach sinners. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Um, Too bad we don't have that. We could verify God's handwriting for autographs and things like that. Ten Commandments, a little bit different than we think. We normally see them as Charlton Heston held them with four commandments on one side and six on the other. But here we find that they were written on both sides and so that busts us out of our, our stereotype. Moses was receiving the law. Israel was breaking the law. Verse 17, and when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp, but he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. Is this the first use of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat? Yeah, ABC News got this right from here. But anyway, probably none of you know what I'm talking about there either, right? I'm only 63, I'm not that old. These are iconic words that everyone should know. We're going to start having class. Instead of Sunday school, we're going to have classes in, in everything I know about pop culture. You know, some people say, have you heard this song? I said, not only have I missed songs and artists, I have missed entire genres of music. Uh, I still think uh, Led Zeppelin is top of the charts. But anyway, that's just me. 
digress. Uh, but I digress. Joshua, where did he come from? Well, we forget he went partway up the mountain with Moses. Let's say he went halfway up. And so he had been there the whole 40 days that Moses was on Mount Sinai. He camped there 40 days, no human contact, no divine contact. It's like an episode of Alone. You've seen that show, Alone? They got people who have survival skills and they drop them in uh, these wicked, wicked areas like Patagonia or this year it was Mongolia. And they have, they have some supplies, but you know, they have to hunt for their own food. One, one kid was reduced to eating leeches that he roasted over an open fire. Leeches that were on rats. Oh! $500,000 is not enough money for that. And so, so, but you know, Joshua was just there. I don't know if he knew how long he was gonna be there. Did he have a tent? Did he have to build a yurt? I mean, what did he do while he was there? Did he hunt? Did he have food? Did he fast? What's interesting, if any Israelite had cause to complain, it would have been him. And not that we need it, but Joshua proves that the Israelites could easily have waited the 40 days. What was his secret? Well, Joshua was Moses' servant. If he was told to wait, he waited. He didn't try and sneak up on Moses to see what was going on. He didn't try on the weekends going home to see what was happening below. He just hung out there waiting. We can rejoice in the simplicity of serving God by simply waiting in his will. If you're not definitely out of the will of God because you're sinning, whatever's happening in your life probably is within his will. I won't say it is his direct will, but he is allowing it. And as long as he's allowing it, you might as well wait like Joshua did. It's not going to be easy, but that's your calling as a servant. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. No mystery as to the symbolism. First edition, 10 commandments were gone physically and spiritually. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. I'm not up on internal medicine, but I'm guessing that drinking ground up gold and burnt wood isn't very healthy. Somebody in between services sent me a website where in the past people have drank gold uh, in a certain capacity thinking that it had something to do with helping them. Uh, if you want to do that, let me know how that works out for you. But the idea here of them drinking it is that they thought that they were just sinning, doing these outward works, getting drunk, having an orgy, committing lewd sexual things but they really were things that come from the heart. They're internal. Moses was allowing them to internalize their sin so that they would understand how dangerous sin is. It's not something you can play with. Just think of how many substances that are poison when they're abused and destroying lives. And the religions and the philosophies of this present evil world system, they are destroying lives, promising paradise, but delivering poison. And so the things that we believe and the things that we do are important because they shape who we are. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Maybe I watched too many movies, but I think Moses was saying, how did they torture you? Did, did they waterboard you in order to get this, this behavior from you? Did they stick a pencil in your ear and pop your eardrums? Were there bamboo stalks under your fingernails? How did they 
how in the world could they get you to do this? Moses couldn't imagine that his brother would do this. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods that go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And so I don't know if he said that with fear and trembling, but it's immediately he said, Moses, Moses, it ain't me. It's the people. You know these people. I don't know what that means. But then he says, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. I love that in a kind of a weird negative way because people use this excuse all the time. I used to use it and get away with it when I was a kid. Dad, I don't know where that marijuana came from. Somebody must have put it in my jacket pocket while I wasn't there. I actually got away with that one. I could always come up with one. I tell you, here's another thing. This is a little closer to home, but... Anytime I find that guys get caught, uh, of course, women do it too, but guys get caught looking at pornography on the internet. I don't know where that came from. That just popped up. I don't know where that, oh, I've got a history of uh, the whole history. Somebody driving by, some pervert driving by our house loaded that up onto my iPad. Just man up, admit what you've done. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame, among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Among their enemies means surrounding nations and tribes would be negatively affected by a poor testimony. Like it or not, your life is a testimony one way or the other. Some of the Israelites carried on sinning after the symbolism of the broken tablets and after being made to drink of their sin. Moses must deal with them. He said to them, verse 27, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion and every man his neighbor. Those who kept on carrying on had broken the law and they deserved the death penalty for these sins. Brother, companion, neighbor, this was no small ask. So Moses said, hey, who's for the Lord? And a bunch of Levites came over. They're not the only ones that were for the Lord, but they came. And so Moses said, okay, hey, thanks for volunteering. Go tent by tent and kill those who are sinning. They might be your brothers. They might be your friends. They're certainly your neighbors, but this is what the Lord requires. You know, you might be called upon to break fellowship with a family member or a friend or a neighbor who at some point won't repent. It's hard, but you can be thankful you don't have to kill them. Now, that has a little bit of humor in it, but really, if you were an ancient Israelite, you would have to literally execute these people. And sometimes we balk at, should I, should I go to that wedding? Should I go to that ungodly wedding? Should I, should I eat this? Should I go here? Those are all individual choices. Don't get me wrong. There's no roadmap for this. But people sometimes who are in wicked, unrepentant sin, they need to be confronted and um, we need to do that. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day 
for every man who has opposed his son and his brother. From this day forward, the tribe of Levi was assigned a special place in the care of the tabernacle. They were blessed by their obedience to be the ones to handle the things of the Lord. Now it came to pass the next day that Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. God had offered to make Moses a new Abraham. That's pretty heady stuff. I mean, if, you're, if you have any pride, all right, that sounds good. They are a stiff-necked people. Uh, I, I get tired of them myself, so let's, let's go. Make of me your new nation. But Moses refused. He stood in the gap for these people. Ministry, not, and I'm not talking about full-time pastoral ministry, just our ministries always involve stiff-necked people at some point. It's not a reason to quit on them or on your ministry. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book, which you have written. This book could be the book of life later described in the Bible. Most likely, it was the census that we read about in a previous chapter. That would make the most sense since uh, they had just taken a census of all the men that were over a certain age for military service. Moses identified with the sinners when he asked to be numbered among them. The meditation here is that he was acting like Christ. We read of our Savior, he was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, and those, that's us. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Does this mean they were lost for eternity? No. Those who had sinned could be forgiven, but they would, as a consequence, die a premature death. They'd not be on the census roll when the Israelites entered the promised land. They'd be removed. This, in fact, you know, came true when these same individuals refused to enter the promised land. All those above 20 years of age were restricted from going into the land. They died in the wilderness wanderings during a 40-year period. Apparently, not everyone was involved in the worship of the golden calf with its ensuing party. We saw the Levites remain faithful. And I can name at least one other person who I'm guessing wasn't involved, and that would be Caleb. Caleb and Joshua, buddies. You see them as two of the 10 spies. They're the only ones who bring a good report. Yeah, there's giants in the land. It's unconquerable, so let's go conquer it. Later on, Caleb gets tired of waiting for his inheritance and pops forward and says, I want my inheritance right now and I want the hardest, highest mountain with all the giants on it. And he's like a million years old by then. So I'm guessing Caleb didn't have anything to do with this golden calf. In fact, I'm betting they had him restrained somewhere. Because Caleb is the kind of guy that just is gonna strap on and say, I'm gonna kill you. you a golden calf comes out of that fire and you're dead. And so, you know, I, I, I'd love to know more about what really went on. We're just getting so much on the surface, but you need to, without being unbiblical, you can read some things in or at least speculate. And Caleb, man, he must have been having a hard time during this. But anyway, there were those who remained faithful. Verse 34, now therefore go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. And the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. So the punishment he was talking about seems to be a plague. We don't know all the details of it, but uh, it killed a number of them in order to emphasize that they were falling short of their goal. It's an encouragement to us to finish well. Too many of us 
I mean Christians, in our old age are falling back into old habits, old sins, making shipwreck of our walk and our ministries. You see it, you know, with famous individuals, famous pastors, megachurch pastors. There's too many stories over the last few years of failures, moral failures and whatnot. But a lot of Christians are falling into this too because of waiting, because you get tired of waiting. It's not that we can't wait to wait, it's that we don't want to wait. God's not doing this or that or the other thing. I've been telling people since 1979 that the Lord is coming at any moment. And you know what? I'm not, uh, I'm not touting my own horn. That's what the Bible says. I sometimes even think, really, Lord? You couldn't have come back in 1988 when they said you would? And that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, we wait. And the longer you wait, depending on what kind of person you are, the more you can just kind of relax and say, hey, this isn't going to hurt me too bad. That's not a harm. I used to do that, but I can do it better. And, and you know, you end up falling back into some of these habits and these sins. And a lot of Christians are making shipwreck their faith towards the end. It's a bummer. You sometimes hear criticism of the so-called God of the Old Testament. It's unfounded. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is presented as a relenter, never desiring or taking any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but working constantly to save them. I'll close with a poem that encourages us in our waiting. It goes like this. So dear to my heart is the promise of God, a home with the pure and blessed, where earth-weary pilgrims, strangers here below, will find their eternal rest. I'm homesick for heaven, seems I cannot wait, yearning to enter Zion's pearly gate. There, never a heartache, never a care, I long for my home over there. Let's pray.